thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 131, Who's to Blame for Germany's Defeat? Last time, we uncovered the great irony of Operation Barbarossa, and more generally, World War II. The battle of the war that made the difference was between Nazi Germany and the USSR, and it was the latter that, as the war progressed, had the better weapons, namely tanks and artillery, though the Germans had superior steel. In some ways, this had been true as early as 1939, but Berlin, and more importantly, Essen, had ignored a report to Stalin and the Politburo that read in part, the Soviet Union, which was weak and unprepared for defense, is now ready for all emergencies. It is capable, as Comrade Stalin said, of producing modern weapons of defense on a mass scale, and of supplying our army with them in the event of a foreign attack. But again, the Germans scoffed. A slight variation of this was also true. The Soviet Stavka, Russia's military high command, was no match for the German General Stab. However, the latter's brilliance was cancelled out by Heinrich Kanonen Müller's family of tanks, which wasted thousands of man-hours in Krupp's factories. So many more straightforward but robust panzers could have been produced instead of his complex machines, which broke down as combat went on, whereas the Soviets stuck to two basic tanks, and one of those, the T-34, was superior even to the American Sherman tank as early as the opening day of Barbarossa. To be sure, when the Sherman first reached Russian soil in the fall of 42, the Soviets used it. Better to have an inferior tank than none at all. But it would be the Soviet factories producing Soviet tanks, not to mention the brave Russian men and women doing the fighting, that won the war in the East. And the above sets up another great irony of the war. The Germans, certainly those of Krupp, can be excused for thinking that if they could not solve a technical problem, then that problem was unsolvable. But a man like Stalin would not accept such excuses. So his technicians and engineers worked harder to overcome things, like tank treads that could not navigate in the Ukrainian mud in springtime. However, if the Russians were going to win, nay, survive, the first two years of the war, then the Soviets needed to be able to move men and equipment during those times. The Germans could not. So, the Russian all-purpose wide-tread T-34s were created, or rather modified. And while they may not have been able to move at the same speed as during the dry season, they did not have to, because it was the Germans who just shrugged their shoulders and declared spring to be the deep mud period, and hence were excused from forward or backward movement. But the true irony is that Krupp, had, by November of 41, captured blueprints of the Russian T-34, and with their superior steel, could have produced several thousand machines that would have greatly altered the face of the Eastern Front. But that step was never taken. Though Krupp engineers wrote up a proposal to do just that, Kanonen Mueller 
turned away from such a thought. German pride, or rather, his pride, was at stake. So, the blueprints just sat there. As for Alfred, he was never asked about it, as he was, once again, out of town on some business that should have been handled by someone else. To be sure, there were German innovations, but the best ones came from the generals in the field. Before 1942 was out, which was the year that was to finish off Barbarossa, General Guderian, after not being allowed to amass forces and charge at Moscow, ordered self-propelled tank destroyers, Jagdpanzer, as well as infantry support cannon. Simply put, the towed 37mm and 50mm guns were not standing up to the T-34s, and the panzers certainly weren't. Essen got the request and got down to work. Attaching the 75mm guns to the Skoda 28T chassis, which would not have been possible had the Skoda works of Czechoslovakia not fallen into German hands, i.e. Krupp's hands before the war. This new and more powerful Jagdpanzer not only impressed all involved, from the men of rank in Berlin, but also the generals in the field. Where it was employed, it made the German tanks more effective, as the Jagdpanzer was able to counter the Soviet T-34s. What should have happened next is fairly obvious, but it did not. Instead of mass-producing these weapons, Heinrich Müller decided on making them larger, as if size would make up for quantity. But that's not how the battlefield works. Müller's and Dr. Porsche's latest monstrosity had a 100-millimeter cannon, but was on fixed mounting. Its narrow field of fire also detracted from this new, massive Jagdpanzer. But its worst feature, its reinforced underbelly, made it cost the same as a panzer. So, so much for pumping out a relatively cheap weapon that could have tangible results in the field. The elephant, as it was called, was not the war-saving weapon it was supposed to be. But its true failure would come at the Battle of Kursk which would also be the military beginning of the end, that would dovetail with the warning flag of the previous battle at Stalingrad. By the spring of 43, Hitler knew he needed to turn the Eastern Front around, for now his forces were reacting to the enemy, always a losing proposition. As Barbarossa had not fulfilled its mission of taking Soviet Russia out of the war, in a single thrust. When spring came in 42, Hitler had decided, instead of striking directly at Moscow, as Stalin thought he would, the German leader would focus to the south of the Russian capital and take Stalingrad. If Stalingrad fell into German hands, then not only would there be one less major industrial city to produce weapons for the Russians, but Lendley supplies from Persia would have a harder time finding their way in. But ultimately, the Germans' flanks, covered by Italians, Hungarians, and Romanians on their left or to the north, and the Romanian Fourth Army on their right or to the south, were their downfall, as the Soviets counterattacked, and it was those flanks that were light on anti-tank weapons. 
By mid-December, the German Sixth Army was sacrificed by staying put to tie down Soviet forces, while other parts of the German invasion pulled out of the Caucasus. By late January of '43, the Battle of Stalingrad was all but over, with the Axis forces losing just over 800,000 men. At least 500,000 of them were now dead. Also, the invaders lost 900 aircraft, 1,500 tanks, and another 1,666 tanks captured. As for artillery, the Germans lost almost 6,000 pieces to the Soviets. But still trying to recapture the offensive, Hitler's next move was to cut off the Soviet salient, or bulge, near Kursk, about 450 kilometers or 280 miles southwest of Moscow. The salient itself was 250 kilometers or 160 miles from north to south, and 160 kilometers or 99 miles east to west. The idea was to drive two separate forces at both edges and surround what Soviet forces lied within. It wasn't a true offensive, but Hitler hoped to use this victory to slow down, or at least forestall, a Soviet offensive. Besides which, Hitler hoped that this victory would stop any talk of his allies from withdrawing from the war. Alfred hoped to receive tens of thousands of workers for his factories. However, Stalin knew of Operation Citadel, Hitler's gambit here, months in advance, thanks to the British Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park. So while the Soviets built up their defenses and pulled out mobile units to ready for a counteroffensive, the Germans built up their forces at each attack point by bringing in new Panther tanks, as well as a large number of Tiger heavy tanks. But Hitler's hopes rested on Krupp elephants, the massive Jagdpanzer. Ninety of them would be involved in the first day's fighting. Operation Citadel commenced at 5.30 a.m. on July 5th, 1943. The Germans achieved minor successes, early on, even breaking through some of the closer defensive works. But Stalin's second-tier lines held. The massive minefields, which were, again, only possible due to British intelligence, slowed the attackers' advance, allowing the more numerous Soviets to pull men from reserve positions or from other defensive belts. What territory the Germans gained narrowed over the next few days but it would be the inability of the flanking attacks that were to protect the two main thrusts that would spell the doom of the offensive. And that was mostly due to the ineffectiveness of Krupp's elephants. By the end of the first day of battle, July 5th, the Stavka received a report that read, Preliminary reports show that our troops have crippled or destroyed 586 enemy tanks but those weren't the only casualties of that day. Every single one of Krupp's 90 elephants were destroyed before the sun went down. It would have served those fighting in the field better to have 1,000 smaller Jagdpanzers, but the choice had been made by Alfred's man, 
On another day, 433 Krupp tanks were destroyed. Then another 520. Then another 304. The more the Germans pressed, the more tanks and men they lost. By July 22nd, Citadel was called off. It was time to start thinking defensively, a very unfamiliar thought process to the Wehrmacht. As the Germans retreated and tried to entrench, they had 70,000 fewer men and almost 3,000 fewer tanks to do it with. But more of this, and in detail, when we get to this point in our main story. With such results, Stalin's Stavka decided, as Hitler had previously, it was time to take back what had been lost. The year of 1943, Alfred's map back in Essen, saw the removal of hundreds of red pins, which had indicated plants, factories, and resources under German or Krupp control. To be sure, at times, some of those pins were put back in place, but only to be removed again in the future, as the Wehrmacht was slowly, at first, but inevitably, rolled back. As the leader of Krupp's, Alfred was focused on the war in its current state, but he was also thinking about the future. With General Paulus's surrender, along with what remained of his 6th Army at Stalingrad, Alfred now changed tactics in the face of German reversals. What factories were still in Krupp hands were now gouged of vital equipment and resources and sent back west. But also, ownership was made legal and hopefully for the concern, binding in the forms of reams of paperwork. But even Alfred Krupp could not foresee what post-war Eastern Europe would look like with Stalin's godlike grasp of all the lands. Alfred's paperwork would be worthless as the Cold War heated up. As for his physical custody of those plants' machines, that was another matter, but one that would be dealt with by Stalin and Molotov at the various Allied meetings of the Big Three. Back to Alfred, he had been running the concern for some time, but now it was time, as his father's life force simply ebbed away, for a real crop to officially take the helm. The time of the prince consort, though admirably done, was over. Gustav Krupp turned 71 the year of Operation Barbarossa. The first three years of the war could not have gone better for the Third Reich, with the exception of the Battle of Britain and having to bail out Mussolini in Albania and Greece. Still, those had been heady days. But that year of 1941, Gustav would suffer his first stroke. Not that he admitted as such. The Alfred Krupp, the first canon king, would have been proud of him. Of course, the Krupp queen, Berta, knew it was so, and so did Gustav's lawyer and family doctor. Still, each morning, Gustav, with help, would ride his horse each morning before breakfast. Appearances had to be maintained. But Berta, respecting and understanding her husband's pride, had her own horse saddled and discreetly followed her husband 
should anything untoward befall him. But as Gustav had a personality equal to Krupp's steel, it was he and he alone in early 1942 that decided it was time to give up writing. He then spent his days pretending to read reports from the works, and Berta left him to it. That same year, 1942, Gustav Krupp wrote his last note to his workers, the Kruppenier. In the areas menaced by Aerotech, the armament worker of 1941 is exposed to the same material danger as the soldier. Again, I must affirm that under the unusual conditions, he does his duty gallantly and calmly. This is stirring stuff until one is bombed. But even here, Gustav's memory is false. Essen was practically free of bombing raids until January 7, 1943. However, there was one bombing, a rather light affair, back in 1940, when Germany invaded the Low Countries. But the time would soon come when no Krumpenier would be safe from Allied bombs. But this brings us to Alfred's dark times, actions or decisions taken by him voluntarily which requires some explanation, but certainly not justification. As Alfred was the heir, it was understood that his brothers would either join some branch of the military or go on to learn a trade or a skill that would allow them to assist in the concern. Berthold started off as an officer in a horse-drawn artillery, but now was quite safe behind the lines, being assigned to a staff. Harold was in Romania, showing those soldiers how to most effectively use the Krupp 88. Again, relatively safe. Harold was going to be a lawyer working for the concern, but the war demanded his assistance. As for Eckbert, he was the youngest, and so was placed out of harm's way, supposedly in Italy as a lieutenant. As we have already seen, the fifth of Alfred's brothers, Claus, died testing aircraft. To be the oldest of Bertha Krupp, the true owner of Krupp of Essen, was to be the heir. But Alfred could not be unaffected by having all of his brothers in uniforms. Yes, he may be the cannon king, but could he serve Germany just as admirably as his brothers? That was the question that seemed to burn in his chest upon taking up the daily duties of the works. Now that Alfred was the one showing up in the Essen office each morning, he gave up his hobbies. He abandoned his friends from college. He put aside any desire for a family life. His only companions were the various boards he served on, the RVE, the RVK, the National Armaments Council, the Coal Syndicate, and the Iron Producing Industry Group. Of course, this was apart from his political responsibilities, having taken over from Gustav his party posts, given to him by Hitler himself. In other words, he was taking orders from himself. There was no one above him saying, do this, no matter that it's against international law or suffer the consequences. Quite the opposite, Alfred would be the one using those words. A good place to demonstrate Alfred's desire to serve Germany and his company is the 
Bertha work in Silesia. It was constructed with Auschwitz Jews. Now, there were many under Hitler who were against this, either because it was illegal or it was considered a waste of time to have Jews do anything to serve the Third Reich. Surely they would sabotage. In fact, on February 5, 1942, Alfred brought up this idea, but it was shot down by Nazi engineers. Alfred, thinking of all the work that could be done with the idle prisoners, took his idea directly to Hitler on August 8th. Alfred sat down with Hitler and Albert Speer in charge of armaments and explained his idea. Simply that POWs and those in concentration camps could be used to make war goods for the Reich or help pulling resources from the earth. There were no minutes taking of this meeting, but by the time they adjourned, Hitler let it be known that Krupp was to be given all the help he needed to undertake this. It has to be said that there were other industrialists who undertook no such comparable action. This was Alfred's idea, and as such, it would mostly be Krupp entities that used slave labor against all international law. Since the 18th century, it has been the established international norms that said, War captivity is neither revenge nor punishment, but sole protective custody, the only purpose of which is to prevent the prisoners of war from further participation in the war. It is contrary to military tradition to kill or injure helpless people. But Alfred, having tied his wagon to Hitler's war horse, needed the Reich to be victorious, no matter what. Many have been called patriots, but Alfred, as had other canning kings before him, was labeled, proudly at first, a super-patriot. Greetings, everyone. So these are the June episodes I'm working on July now. And then, of course, I'll keep working to get caught up for the end of August. Again, very sorry for the delay. Um, I'm going to keep going with the Krupp story. However, I did learn some things or come across some things while I was in Europe. Um, So what I'll do is I'll probably sprinkle in some standalone episodes. Some really neat stuff that I had no idea. It's kind of small, but it gives you a... Uh, a deeper understanding of the war, uh, especially the conflict. Um, so I'll, I'll put those in as I can. But again, I'm, I'm getting caught up. I do have tons of pictures from Europe. I went to the beaches of Normandy. Um, that was amazing with Adrian. And um, got some pictures. I will put them all on Facebook and, and kind of organize them into albums so it'll make a lot more sense. But again, thank you for your patience. And the... Um, Attack on Pearl Harbor, a regular episode, is coming out next week. So I will see you as soon as I can. Take care, everyone.